I'll just share what I do with clients to get them to a higher win rate is you can't give away demos. You can't give away your team's time and resources, your engineering time, your business value team, your legal team. This is all valuable time and you're the quarterback. If you want to do a demo, we're going to customize it. We're going to do a deep understanding of your environment, make sure and see how it would fit in. We're not here to show and tell. We're here to help you solve your business problems. Hi, friends. Welcome to the WinRate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Well, that was Ian Koniak. And Ian is one of my guests on this episode of the WinRate Sales Podcast. Ian Koniak is founder and CEO at Untap Your Sales Potential. My other guests today for this really interesting discussion about sales effectiveness include Eric Quanstrom. Eric is Chief Marketing Officer at Science. And Nate Bagley. Nate is head of content at Closed. Now, one listener note before we jump into today's discussion, I'd love to answer your questions. I mean, if you have questions about B2B selling, sales effectiveness, how to increase your win rates, would you like to have answered either by me or one of my guests on the program? So you can submit those to me via email at winratepodmail.com. Or if you prefer, you can DM me on LinkedIn, Andy Paul on LinkedIn, <laughs> in case you didn't know, to hear from you. So if you're ready, Let's jump into today's discussion. Welcome, everyone. So glad you could join us today. I've got a great roundup of, of guests here. I, I know I say that every time. We've got great guests. We do have great guests again today. Nate, let's start with you. Give us uh, a few words about what you do and where you do it. Uh, my name is Nate Bagley. I'm the head of content at Closed, and we are the leading provider in win-loss analysis services and tech as well as a proud sponsor of this program. So proud. Honored we to are... sponsor what you're up to over here. There's so much awesome alignment, and I'm excited to see where today's conversation goes. Well, yeah, thank you for your support. Next, Ian Koniak. Hey, Andy, good to see you. Good to good see to you. Meet you, Eric and Nate. I'm the CEO of Untap Your Sales Potential, and we are a sales coaching mastermind for strategic sellers to learn the skills, the mindset, and the habits they need to become top 1% sellers. We're going we're gonna to touch on that. You might not be surprised to find out today. And EQ, as I call you. I love it. And I have favorable initials along those lines. You do, uh, right? <laughs> Eric Quanstrom, I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Science and Intentional Misspelling. It's uh, science without the S. We provide uh, lead generation software and services to a pretty wide range of companies to help them grow more, grow their pipelines, and win net new business. Excellent. All right. Again, welcome, everybody. And so here's a question for the group to start out with is, is sort of a leading question, but hey, it's my show. So win rate is, in my mind, is the single most important KPI for AEs. And it seems like this is a message that's eluded most sellers and sales leaders. And it's it sort of takes people by surprise oftentimes when I ask people what their win rates are. It's like, what are you talking about? And then I look at all the content on LinkedIn about sales. And yeah, I know we're all at least um, neck deep in it. I presume many of us are as well. And it's about everything. But in fact, it is interesting. I had somebody message me on LinkedIn this week and commented saying, oh, isn't talking about winning a little old fashioned? I'm like, you know, minds explode type thing. It's like, why, why do we have so little conversation about actually winning? We know that win rates are, I know a lot of people know win rates are down. And pretty low, even in companies that seemingly are growing relatively rapidly. Why is there so little 
focus on it? And why do people start gravitate to, gee, I want to learn about everything, but Ian, lead us off. I think win rate can be a confusing question to begin with. The definition of win rate could be different from company to company. And when you, mm-hmm. I'll just speak to who I coach and what I coach on. I, I sure. say win rate is the percentage of deals that you win when you propose to a client, not percentage of pipeline, because mm-hmm. you can have a lot of pipe dreams that aren't really qualified that are put there for sure. placeholder purposes or to appease management or whatever. So really your true win rate is when you propose the client and ask them to buy, what percentage of those do you win? And on average, I've seen around 50% when people get to that proposal stage. Five um, zero, you're saying? Five zero, yeah. At the proposal stage, meaning we've presented numbers, we've asked clients to buy. And it's an important topic. It's one of three areas I look at. I look at activity. In other words, what are the inputs people are doing? The win rate. And we look at the average selling price or deal size. And we work on those three key components. But win rate's one of the three most important that I look at as a sales coach. And it starts with getting qualified customers that want to progress through the sales cycle and reach the stage where they will see a proposal that can align to whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish in their organization. And I think a lot of leaders don't coach to that or don't manage to that. They manage mm-hmm. to total pipeline of oh, 3X, 4X, 5X. But really, purpose of a pipeline is to get to a proposal that we ask people to buy and work with us. And so really, there's three things when you propose that we want to look at. Number one is, did we win? If so, why? Right? Did we lose? If so, Why? And did they push or get no decision? It's really that. They went with us. They went with the competitor. Mm-hmm. They didn't do anything, right? And so that is the components we look at. And ultimately, it comes down to the people that have a low win rate, a true low win rate, where they're only winning one in four deals. Most, Most often, what I see is that they're proposing too soon. They're putting numbers in front of customers before it's fully qualified. So I think it's an important topic and one that I look at very closely with people that I work with. Yeah, I would take a little different opinion what what constitutes the win rate in terms of when you start measuring. And I, I look when you consider an opportunity that you're going that you're making the choice to invest mm-hmm. time in, mm-hmm. so that's really when the clock starts because yeah, you know, you're gonna spend most of your time and effort prior to making the proposal. Yep. And so I think it's really my view and the way I've worked at for decades now is that's when it starts, right? Because it's those choices you make pretty early on. They're really, to your point, make a decisive difference whether you're ultimately going to win it or not, whether they qualified or not. Eric? Yeah, I was just going to echo some of what you're saying, Andy. I think that this is where you have the concept of a cycle and perhaps even drop off stage by stage in that cycle. And that's typically what's measured in most of the tools that we use, known as CRM. And it kind of presents, I think, not only a confusing, but oftentimes a misleading perspective to a lot of the salespeople that adhere to exactly that, right? So like to take Ian's point, from proposal to close one at 50%, you could look at that in a bunch of different ways, but it fundamentally ignores all the time you've spent getting somebody to that proposal phase and all of the potential waterfall and drop-off that you might've seen along the way. Yeah, Nate. Yeah, Andy, I'm going to go to human nature here. I think people tend... Uh to focus on things that they have control over and avoid things they don't have control over. And I think a sales leader is more likely or a sales rep is more likely to put a lot of time and attention to focus on pipeline 
because it's a lot simpler to influence and it's a lot more, a lot easier to measure. And when you're talking about win rate, the measure is, as we can see from this conversation, can be different depending on like what your what your what the context mm-hmm. is. But more importantly, like the the big question mark is how do you move the needle? What levers do you pull in order to influence win rate? And that right. answer might change from rep to rep, or team to team, or company to company. And there are so many different things that can influence win rate. I think people might get overwhelmed and not know where to start. Like, do we need to adjust our pricing and packaging? Do we need to improve our sales demo? Is our marketing off base? Are we even targeting the right customers? Like the list of things that can influence win rate is so vast. I think it can be really hard to use it as a benchmark for people because there's not a clear answer of this is the thing that you need to do to improve win rate. Whereas if you're focusing on pipeline, you just do more outreach. Like the thing you need to do is make more calls, send more emails, do more outreach, and you'll hit your number. And that's such an easier and more approachable formula. Even though it may not be as effective or powerful, it's like easier to grasp. And it makes, I think it can make a rep feel like they have more control over their fate when they focus on that more simple side, that more simple number. Yeah, it's interesting because I look at it a little differently. And then I think that as a seller, there's only things I control are myself, right? And that's always the case, right? right? So if you're a seller and you're so bound up in all these externalities, things that are outside of you, product price and so on, yeah, you're going to be going down the rabbit hole quickly and never But how often do sellers set their own benchmarks? I think the benchmarks are set by the sales leaders and then the sellers do the best to hit the benchmarks or the targets that the sales leaders create. So so I think you're right. As a seller, you have more control over yourself, but- if your sales leader only has a way to in, to measure or influence your pipeline generation, then that's what you're going to spend your time doing. That's true. That's true. Yeah, it's funny. I was, I was having a conversation with a CRO last week, and this is sort of back to this, just sort of trying to, from my mind, trying to sort of coalesce around a mind, the right mindset to have around win rate at all levels within sales. And, and I'd asked the CRO if he had seen this data that came from Gartner a month or two ago about Hey, here are the nine factors, the most important factors, stack ranked, according to buyers, influence their decisions the most. And I think I've discussed this. I know Nate, you and I've talked about, I think may have talked about Eric as well. And of those nine reasons, none of them were product and price. And so I asked the if he had seen that and what he thought of it. And his response, A, and seen it. And I tell him about it. He said, yeah, I guess that's kind of interesting. And I said, when you hear this, does it make you think at all differently about how to train your people on the skills and the mindsets and the perspectives they need to have. Because what the buyers are saying is, hey, a competitive product at a competitive price is basically table stakes. What makes the difference are these experiences I have with sellers going through the process. And his response was, make things differently about it? No. And it's just like, how do we start changing the mindset, Ian? Here's the mindset. Again, I'll just share what I do with clients to get them to a higher win rate is you can't give away demos. You can't give away your team's time and resources, your engineering time, your business value team, your legal team. This is all valuable time and you're the quarterback. I came from salesforce.com in the enterprise space. I had a team of 20 people that I oversaw across the various product lines and whatnot. And it was always a matter of give to get. If you want to do a demo, we're going to customize it. We're going to do 
and deep understanding of your environment, make sure and see how it would fit in. We're not here to show and tell. We're here to help you solve your business problems. So what's not working before we go down this road together of getting to a place where we reach a custom demo, a proposal, a business case, whatever those next steps are, I want to make sure you're committed to solving this problem, that it's top of mind and that you're willing and able to invest the resources that I'm going to put in first. And that's the mindset we want to have is if I'm going to get to a proposal stage to Eric's point, to your point, Andy, which is before they drop off, I don't want them to drop off when we've both done a ton of work and invested three to six months to get there, right? I want to know up front that we're going to drop off. So setting those expectations and defining what the buying and selling process should look like on both sides, really mapping out, here's what we need to talk to, here's what we need to see. Here's where we're going. Here's how long it'll take. Here's what's needed from your team is a way to disqualify or qualify the clients that you put into your pipeline. And I want to know that if I'm going to get to a proposal, that we're going to have a very good chance of winning that deal before I go invest not only my time, but my team's time and energy. Because if we're with you, we're not with someone else. So I'll tell that to the client and really in a very respectful, polite way where it's amenable and and they know what to expect. And, And I find that Clients that aren't ready or aren't serious will opt themselves out of that process because if we're going to do this right, if you're going to put software in, it's going to be a partnership. And I think that for me is the mindset going in is you have a team, you have a responsibility, you're going to work your butt off and you need to make sure that your client is putting skin in the game as well in terms of giving resources, information, access, whatever is needed to proceed in the sales cycle. So setting that up front and having a mindset around before we go down this road, let's talk about what comes next, I think is really important to improving win rate and overall experience because you want to work with customers who want to work with you back, right? (laughs) Nothing worse than chasing someone and getting ghosted and not having that dual communication. And I think you, you raise a really interesting point. One of the things that I've observed, especially happening in, and I think this is one of the biggest untalked about trends in B2B sales writ large, which is this, it's actually way harder to buy than it is to sell. And most buyers are disorganized, ad hoc, completely like they may have big business problems that they want to solve, but the way in which they go about solving them is really not a step-by-step, paint-by-numbers, highly organized approach whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately- Something they do, yeah, once every two to three years, I suppose something the seller does every single day. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, like depending on what type of product, service, or solution we're talking about here, you're talking about a totally different cast of characters for any given purchase, even in the same department, right? Mm -hmm. So like, ultimately, I I think of buying as a lot of the sales teams of the future and the sales teams that really have high win rates. Ian, I think they're not only like kind of setting the ground rules and executing that somewhat verbal contract up front, but they're providing a really necessary service for buyers who find it exceptionally hard to self-organize, exceptionally Mm -hmm. hard to synthesize information around any buying process. Right now we're drowning in information. We're not like, there's not an abundant or a a scarcity of it, but you can figure out like products and services online to the high heavens. And frankly, there's way too much of it to consume for any logical, rational, sane person that also has a day job. I think that to your point, Eric, is what buyers are looking for from sellers is, yeah, to a point that Ian was making, is to help them 
ask them questions they don't think to ask themselves, right? Yes, there's a ton of information out there, but they have no context. They have no framework to put it in to help them make sense of what they're trying to do. And this ultimately becomes the role of salesperson. This is when you're laying out and mapping out this process together. What you're doing is saying, look, part one of this is we're going to really make sure we really understand the problem and the challenge that you face. And then once we really understand that is understand what you can achieve by addressing it. Yeah, they want a prescription. It's like, here's the problem. Tell me what we need to do. If you lean in and really spend more time understanding the problem and asking the right questions, then they're going to be leaning into you. So and asking, what? okay, what do we do about it? And, and that's the relationship you want. You want clients that don't know necessarily what to do and are looking for you for guidance. What have other customers done? How do we go about doing this? That's a trusted advisor to clients. And I don't think Which most was, sellers are showing up that way, Frank. Well, it's number one on the list of Gartner that the buyer said. Number one factor that influences their, and this is really important, is distinction is, and I've written about this, is that too many sellers from a mindset perspective think they're selling a product. The buyer thinks they're choosing yeah. a vendor. Yeah. Right? And those are completely different things. And so Gartner's study is the number one issue from buyers about the factor that influences their choices the most are trustworthiness. It is that that human interaction. Yeah, I'm just notice I'm noticing this this conversation has my brain cooking up an analogy and I want to pitch it to you guys and see what you think about it. Oh sure. So, oh, I love it. Creativity. <laughs> this is where my brain is going, my marketing brain. So I think it like a win rate is a really clear benchmark that reflects the overall health of your business in the marketplace. Are we doing a good job at providing a solution for a very specific problem for our customers? Like how good of a job are we doing? Your win rate should be reflective of that. And in real life, there's like multiple ways to take care of your health. On one side, like you could have a fitness coach who helps you with your diet, your nutrition, your exercise, make sure you're getting enough sleep, drinking enough water. And you're mm-hmm. kind of doing these best practices, these best practices, these repetitive behaviors, these processes that will lead you to success. And I feel like a lot of the conversation that we've had so far is kind of that side of health. But there's another side of health, which is like identifying sickness and um, making sure that you're well and like doing a blood draw or having a, a CAT scan or something to detect for stuff that you can't see. Because you can be doing all of those mm-hmm. things. You can be working out every day and eating healthy foods and drinking water and getting a lot of sleep and still not be healthy. And I'm realizing right. that like my perspective of this conversation, because I'm not like a, I'm not a sales coach. I don't have a really strong sales background, but I work for a company that does win-loss analysis. My perspective is the way, another way to impact win rate is to be, to look at the diagnostic side, to try and find problems that are happening in the business that are getting in the way. Like, we had a, I had a conversation with a, a product marketer over one of the head, like the head of product marketing at PandaDoc the other day. And he was telling me how they, they always felt like pricing was a really strong point for them. Their simplicity of their pricing was just like a pillar for their business. It was something that they, that set them apart from the competition. And they were looking at their win-loss analysis interview interviews and found that they were losing regularly because of pricing. And he's like, what the heck is going on? So he went back and listened to his gong calls. And their pricing is really simple, but their sales reps were delivering too many options. And so they did have simple pricing, but they were still overwhelming their buyers with too many options. And it was getting in the way of their buyers making a a decision. And so all they had to do Mm -hmm. was like scale back and train the reps. Hey, just give like two options instead of five options and win rates went up. And I'm realizing that there's like, there's two sides of the conversation. One side is like, are we 
making demos a little bit more challenging and not giving them out like candy? Are we making sure that we're targeting the right people? And some of these best practices are really great, but there's things that we can be doing diagnostically to identify problems in our sales process, in our business, in our product that can also impact that number. And now a message from Closed. An often overlooked way to improve your win rate is to identify and close win-back opportunities. After conducting tens of thousands of buyer interviews, Closed has found that 10% of closed loss deals have the potential to be won back at some point in the future. Now, identifying these win-back opportunities early and knowing when and how to follow up could be worth millions. Closed recently helped one of their customers identify and win a $500,000 win-back opportunity within days of it being marked as closed lost. Closed automatically reached out to perform a win-loss interview when the deal was marked closed loss in the CRM. And the buyer said, well, actually, we're still interested and we're ready to sign the contract. Closed is finding win-back deals on a daily basis for their clients. How about for you? To help you get started receiving the value of consistent, direct, candid feedback from your buyers, Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So to claim your gift, visit winlosstoolkit.com. That's winlosstoolkit.com. And now a message from Alego. Are you struggling to make your sales team more efficient and improve time to productivity? With Alego's modern revenue enablement platform, marketing sales and enablement teams get on the same page for continuous improvement. So break through all the noise and deliver the buying experiences that your buyers today demand. Enable faster ramp times for your rep and more revenue for your business in less time. See how it all can work for you. Go to alego.com demo. That is alego.com slash demo. Yeah, it makes sense. And there's a lot to look at. It could be their discovery, yeah. right? Are they getting, it could be their business case. Can they not justify it? It could be the decision makers. Who are they meeting with? Are they getting to the economic buyers? Or there's just a lot of different ways to, and I don't know if, I don't think sales managers, Andy, you probably know better than me, but I don't think sales managers do a lot of that. It's more of the forecasting, look at the, deals, when's it going to close? What do I need to do to help you? But not looking back and seeing what happens. I think Nate's referred to it as as historically, it sort of seems like win-loss analysis has sort of been the province of product marketing people, right? Let's look at, let's look at our win rate. Oh, let's tweak our price, right? As opposed to everything that you mentioned, Ian, which is, this is really not a product marketing issue. This is really for sales teams Mm -hmm. that should have their finger, their thumb on the pulse of the buyer's voice, what's their experience like? Because you, you talk about discovery. Buyers, they know what poor discovery feels like. They know when they don't feel like they're being understood by the seller. The seller just didn't get it. And how often does the buyer volunteer that information? <laughs> A lot, right? They're just going to say, yeah, I don't have more time for you. Let's, I'm just going to keep talking to Ian because Eric didn't yep. do it for me. We so, did research last quarter about how much buyers act or sell how much buyers actually tell sellers. We looked at the CRM data on about a thousand deals and like who the competitor was on those deals and what the closed loss reason was and compared it to actual conversations that we had with buyers. 
And 65% of the time, the competitor in the CRM was not the competitor, was different than the competitor that the buyer listed. And 85% of the time, the closed loss reason that the rep logged in the CRM was not the same thing that the buyer said that they lost the deal. Like a buyer typically lists four to five different reasons a deal is lost. And the CRM didn't match up with one of those 85% of the time. And I don't think it's because sometimes reps are negligent or just they don't pay close attention because they're busy and they got a lot going on. But I think a lot of the time, it's just buyers aren't 100% transparent with what's going on outside when they're not on a call. And so... And why should they be? Right? Yeah. If you're a buyer, it is still a change management exercise that you're going through in your own organization. You're always looking for the best deal, right? Like there's, the words buyer's remorse are in the lexicon for a yeah. reason. Every buyer's... And, and I actually think this, I think B2B buying especially is more fraught with emotional peril than B2C buying. What do I mean by that? If you become stuck with the label of, oh, that's the idiot that that put that bought this CRM. Oh, that's the guy that like hired this vendor that sucked. Oh, that's the dude that like championed like this underperforming whatever. Mm. You wear that label and it's arguably career limiting move. It becomes part of your reputation, highly emotional. Um, yeah. And that's yeah. Yeah, Matt Dixon and Ted McKenna just wrote about that in their book, The Jolt Effect, right? It's the fear of messing up Fun. that paralyzes decision makers more than anything. It's that that personal risk. And I believe that. I, mean, I you know, wrote about that in my last book is when you're dealing with stakeholders, you have to look things from two perspectives, right? Because they do. Their perspective is, this is what's this decision mean for the company? What's the decision mean for me? Right. And as a seller, if you're not attuned to your stakeholders answer both those questions, then there's a piece of information you're missing out. And Should it ever be a surprise when you hold the cards close to the vest as a buyer? No, but I, right. But I think as a seller, you have, not in 100% of the cases, because some people are just difficult, but in the main, if you take the time to establish your credibility and trust with the buyer, yeah, you establish that emotional connection, which... We talked about this in a previous episode with this data from Trinity Perspectives and Australia, their win-loss analyses. The ability to form an emotional connection with a buyer, buyers over there, more than a thousand interviews that they did, that's stood out as one of the most important things that dictated your ability to win a deal. And so, yeah, you're not always going to be able to achieve the level of transparency you want, but yeah, look at my own career. That was one of the things I thought I was really good at is that yeah, I knew that if I was working a deal that it was going to go to completion, right? And the buyer is being completely transparent about that. And very few times it ended up getting surprised because, you know, I built that level of credibility and trust. I think there's also a level of humanity on the buy side. And I'm throwing my hand in the air as a guy that oftentimes holds budget, you know, uses buying as a, a normal course of, of just what I do mm -hmm. and, and part of my job description. No one wants to be rude. No one wants to ever really like tell a salesperson, tell no them off. To call someone else's baby. Off, off, yeah. Unless they themselves are exhibiting behaviors that that would kind of warrant that. And so it doesn't surprise me one bit, Nate, in your sharing of kind of like the stats are not exactly what people would tell either a survey company or a different third party than the folks that they were just in kind of like constant communication with around right. any problem that they were trying to solve. But I think this issue, because I love that 
stat that Nate gave about the reps only put the correct answer into CRM 15% of the time or only identified the correct reason 15%. 15% of the time where they won is, I don't know, Ian, you tell me, I, I, my experience, so I've been, if I just asked, I, I, I pretty much, I pretty much, I pretty much think, the answer. I don't think they know. I really don't. I think it's. But that's the point is they should know though. Yeah, it's, why are they continue? I don't know, Andy. What? I, I think don't know. I don't, in our in my experience, what I've found is that a lot of the time buyers don't even know until they're asked. You'd be surprised yeah. how many times we get a we have a buyer interview and then we ask them like, "Oh, why did you go with this vendor over us or our client or whatever?" And they go, "Oh, and they, I never really thought about this. Like, I never really thought about comparing feature set to feature set, or I never thought about comparing like exactly why we made this decision." And sometimes at a surface level, but when you want to go deep and really understand the entire process, a lot of people, I don't think consciously know exactly why they're making a decision. Like, I'm looking at it from a different perspective, though. And to Ian's point about, hey, if, if you get to a point where you put a proposal in that you should win 50% of the time, mm -hmm. I looked at it a little different. I thought if I put a proposal in, I was going to win almost 100% of the time mm -hmm. because... Even that's better. why I put a, that's why I put a proposal in. Yeah. I wasn't going to propose if I wasn't going to win. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't get surprised from time to time. That happens, right? Life happens. But in the main, if I was going to propose, we got to that stage, I was going to win. Mm -hmm. So I knew because I was continually asking the buyer and working with the buyer, where do we stand? How does this look? How we stand relative to this, relative to that? And I was never comparing myself to the competition. It was how we stand in relation to helping them understand what we could do to help them achieve their goals, right? And if we were sort of locked in on that, then I wasn't going to be surprised very often. So to your point though, Nate, which is a little bit different point, which is, okay, if they didn't choose me, did I know the reason why? Yeah, I generally thought I did. But again, I didn't have the benefit of doing win, detailed win-loss analysis either after the fact. So may have come up with something different, but I just think sellers, I don't know, Mike Bosworth in, in the episode of this podcast that was just released this week, Michael Bosworth the great legendary Michael Bosworth um, said that he ran a test once with a client where he put into their CM system, added a custom field for a reason why they lost. And he put poor salesmanship <laughs> and he said, it was never checked. That's great. And I thought, yeah, right. We deal in these self delusions about how we're doing. It pains me to say this, but I think that's the number one reason. It's really sellers, and I train them, they come to me and pay a lot of money because they're not getting trained by their companies a lot of times. Right. And they're not getting trained by their immediate frontline sales leaders. They're getting pressure. Right. They're saying, go swim yes. with the sharks, go find deals, go fill pipeline, go do activity, let's go. But they're not getting trained. And it really kind of, I don't know what's happened. I, I Maybe because the explosion of SaaS companies and just explosion of software sales in general, but there's a lot. It's of an easy target, that. by the way. Yeah. There's never been, they didn't, I grew up door knocking copiers door to door and we're very competitive space. And we were taught to sell, right? We were taught to really understand and, and position our services in a way that can align to areas customers care about to do cost benefit analysis, to do ROI and business cases. And it was just something we did. And I feel like a lot of the steps are being skipped that People just want to rush to try and they get happy ears. Customer, I'm interested in this. Great. Let's demo. Let's get pricing. And then nothing happens. And they wonder why. You never really understood what, you know, I like, again, there's so many, we've talked a lot about this, Andy, about really? sales methodologies. You go back to spin. You go back to what's the current situation? What is the problem? What is the pain 
that the problem is causing you and what is the payoff if you solve the problem? In, in your book, Sell Without Selling Out, it's really that simple. And it's just talk about why we're here. Talk about what's happening in your business. Tell me and let's look at the situation. If we can help you, great. Let's go ahead and proceed. And if not, no worries. Like there's this scarcity mindset going on where I think maybe the pressure and some of the tech layoffs, especially this year, and RepView just reported the recent data that it was 54% last year at this time, reps reporting hitting quota, and now it's gone to 39. So there's been a dramatic shift in the past year of reps hitting quota. And maybe it was easy back then or something, but I'm like, yeah, you always need to have these skills. This isn't new. It's like I'm teaching people things that are table stakes if you're going to be a professional seller. And they just don't have those skills coming to me when they start. And it's really scary. The truth really. of the matter is you're hitting on a trend line, Ian, that I think is more true than anything that we've talked about thus far, which is this, like bad habits develop in sales or lack of sales craft when things are too easy. And you can't separate the wheat from the chaff and, and basically say, oh, these people aren't really even practicing solid sales craft to close deals, right? Like you can get by in a rising tide lifting all markets mm -hmm. or lifting all sales, it's when it becomes really difficult, especially macroeconomically, especially in industries that are like managing costs, like eagles, <laughs> like with the eagle eye and the red pencil, if you will. And that's when I think that true sales craft has to perform. Otherwise you do see this quota like atrophy across the board. Amen. I'm seeing that. And that's what I tell everyone. It's like, now is your chance to, to shine. Now yeah. is a chance to really pick up your skills because it is harder. And everything you do, assume it's going to have to go to your CEO or CMO or CFO because everything's being scrutinized tightly. Mm -hmm. Companies are compressing tech, not expanding. And, and it's like, now is where you stand out. And now is where the, I don't like to use the word weak, but people without the right Habits or skills are going to get weeded out very quickly, and that's happening. What I observed, especially recently, let's call it since Q2 of 22, in the tech space especially, or tech-enabled services, like what we would commonly think of as like the really hot venture-backed spaces, is that <clears throat> most buy cycles, not only were they consensus before, but now the CFO has like a planned seat in all of those buy cycles. And the CFO is typically asking a, a much different series of questions than their other counterparts cross-departmentally would before committing to any amount of revenue or any amount of spend with a given vendor company. And we're seeing that both in our own world, so I can speak authoritatively to what science has seen as a business, mm -hmm. and I, we're seeing it in clients as well and their own sales cycles going forward that oftentimes we're the ones starting but the CFO on the landscape has become a lot more active than ever before. Our data tells the same story. What questions are they asking? Just for everyone listening, for everyone's benefit, what, what do you have to answer when you take something to your CFO? And They're coming at it with a finance lens. So you're hearing kind of like the ROI discussion, like sliced six different ways. And really it's a matter of like, hey, if we're going to spend this capital, make this investment, a, like, formalize where, what budget is it coming out of? What are we hoping to achieve? What are going to be the outcomes in a financial lens or with reporting attached to it? Not just what would be, say, a sales figure of X amount more deals or X amount of more at-bats for my sales team or soft kind of like ROI metrics, if you will. 
And now, a word from Cognizant. Picture this, your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizant, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizant's U.S. data set alone offers two times more cell phone numbers than any other provider on the market. And it gets even better. Seven million human-verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizant offers the most complete GDPR-compliant data in Europe, making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizant. In just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizant's cell phone data. But don't take our word for it. Get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to Cognizant.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's Cognizant.com slash data sample. I think this gets to Ian's point, which is, again, speaking back to when I was coming up in sales, that was just standard operating procedure, right? We always, and I think part of it was because, not to date myself too unnecessarily, what a lot of what I was selling was really new to the companies. And so it always sort of rose this level of scrutiny. Besides being a seven or eight or nine figure deal, it rose to a certain level of scrutiny just because it's sort of new and innovative for the company and transformative for them. So I was always come up with the idea, this is this was part of what we had to do is deal with the CFO. That was just, but yeah. to Ian's point about things have been maybe so easy it, since 2008, 2009, that the way money was being spent is, especially in a SaaS world, where smaller dollar amounts, if you're starting off necessarily doing your land and expand theory, then yeah, sort of an expense item and CFO didn't really care if it was in your budget, if didn't care to approve it, if it was indeed in your budget. We had a, a business value services team at Salesforce and I leaned on them heavily. And mm-hmm. It was a foreign language. I would get to a point where they had to justify it to their board or their C-suite. And it was right. things like net present value and mm-hmm. payback period and a bunch of charts and graphs that were put together by people from Bain and McKinsey and investment bankers that were analyzing whether to do acquisitions. And that was the pedigree of the business value team that the sales team aligned with for these deals. And we brought them into finance and they worked together with the customers to be able to build those presentations. And I think that was the best kept secret, the best, most valuable asset for the sales team that I had were these finance wizards that could help speak to the CFO in a language that they all related to. And every company, if you can have that to support your sales team, if you're able, that's a a must. It really is. I I would have killed for that. I remember spending nights <laughs> calculating internal rate of returns on investments for customers. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm over my head at this point. <laughs> so I'd go to the CFO, I'd go to the CFO, our CFO, and say, can you please help me with this? Yeah, oversimplifying well, a little bit. One of the things yeah. that I think any of us that have served kind of like tech or especially venture-backed tech industries could probably knowingly nodding head agree with is that Prior to kind of like mid-year 2022, we saw a lot of people that that were buying to achieve a velocity goal. And that's probably the best word I can use to kind of like mm-hmm. paint with a really broad brush of, I just need to get into market. I just need to grow my company. I just need to like get more customers. And those were the kind of arguments that won the day. 
on especially like people that have more money than time. People that had yeah, so selling to the venture back community, for instance. For yeah, exactly. And and where I think this is relevant is the those of us in tech usually always had a key kind of like segment of customers that were also in tech or mm-hmm. venture backed as part of what it is we did. As that pullback started to occur, it was like a daisy chain rippling through the system like ever so slowly, where all of a sudden the, the mantra became not grow at all costs or as fast as possible or grow to get to that next round and hit the milestone and raise even more money, but rather, no, you have to grow profitably now. And so you've got to be a lot more circumspect about how you do that, where you spend your money, where you're investing your dollars, because burn rate's a thing, survivability's mm-hmm. a thing, you can't count on your next round. And now everything, again, all of those thoughts are kind of like almost leading indicators that affect the lagging indicators of, Go to market activities, tools, solutions, services, and so on. All independent yeah. bicycles on their own. Looked like you were you know, say something. I'm just nodding in agreement here. Said. So let me go back, take a step back about uh, win loss analysis. Is so who? This sort of gets back to the point I led the off the show with. Who within an organization should own that? Own it or run it? Yeah. Both. Um, I think it's a scorecard for sales. Yeah, it should be. And sales leadership. I, th- I think if your sales leaders are not interested in understanding directly from their buyers why they're winning and losing deals, you have the wrong sales leaders. I think that I think if you have a culture of growth and continuous improvement and curiosity and a desire to like iterate and win, then you're going to have sales leaders who their primary objective is going to be I want to understand my buyers better than my buyers understand themselves. And I want to equip my reps and my leaders with everything that they need to disseminate that information so we can win as much as possible. Now, they're not going to run the program from day to day, but they're going to want to be like, they're going to want to read every interview that comes across their table, every buyer interview. They're going to want to know the trends on a macro level. Like as a company, why are we winning and losing from quarter to quarter or from year to year? And they're probably going to want to understand, or at least the individual reps and like their sales leaders are going to want to understand on a more micro level, why are we winning and losing each individual deal? Like if we lost a big seven figure deal that came across our table, like we want to know all the reasons that we lost and something we don't talk about often enough. We want to know why we win. Most companies don't track Mm. or get curious about why they're winning. And then they fail to double down on their strengths. And there's a real value in that. I'm going to. Yeah, I'm going to anticipate maybe something Ian's going to say. I, in the times I've had the benefit of working in a, you know, more formal win-loss programs, I I was more focused on the yeah. how we won because that would help me say, okay, how do yeah. we replicate that? Yeah. yeah. That's kind of where I was thinking too, is like uh, even going back in the B2C sense, which is what I'm doing, selling to individuals now, it's like, why did you decide to work with me? It's the first thing I ask. What are you mm-hmm. hoping to gain? And those problems are what I use to market. Right. And those yeah. problems were used for videos and those problems were what I speak to on any kind of interview. And, and that's what attracts people because you're speaking their language. One thing that I think of with win loss analysis is like, how do you improve the odds of winning the deal so that mm-hmm. you can really, because if you have low win rate, I mean, that's discouraging yeah. for everyone in, in the organization. Absolutely. So what I came up with, uh, last year, maybe a year and a half ago was a way to predict what deals were close with very high accuracy, about 90%. And it's working for my clients and it's called predict. 
I may have shared this with you, Andy. We talked about methodologies. I mean, yeah. Ian, Ian method, which was a total joke, but now I actually have a method to see whether your deal is, is qualified to win or not. And it's really simple. It's, I'll just share what the oh, acronym, sure. acronym is. The P is problem with pain. What's the problem? What pain is it causing, right? Make sure you understand that and really quantify the pain. The R is reason, to your point earlier. Why do they need to change? Why is it important to the company? Why is it important to the stakeholder, to your champion, your buyer, your mobilizer, right? What's in it for them? The E is engagement. That's one of the biggest predictors of selling is how engaged is the, is the buyer? Are they mm-hmm. texting you? Are they calling you? Because the communication is really, especially close to contracts, it's really frequent. So if there's silence, there's a problem, right? You better follow up and get back and figure out what's going on. So that's the E is engagement, right? Um, are we multi-threaded? Are we single-threaded? Are we on a regular mm-hmm. you know, basis with them? Um, the, the D is decision maker and decision process or decision makers in decision process. Who actually approves the deal? Who are the key stakeholders and what is their process? Does it have to go to a security team or a legal team or as they're purchasing? Just knowing that process ahead of time, many people don't, right? They get the proposal and they find out there's all these other steps and it stalls. And it, at worst, it stalls. Or worse, they lose, but at best, it stalls, right? They miss their target. The I is impact. It's have we done it business case? Have we quantified the impact of the of solving the problem, essentially? The C is cost of inaction. What happens if they do nothing? In other words, what do they stand to lose if they don't take action? And mm-hmm. what is the cost of delay for that inaction? Mm-hmm. What does it cost them every month to wait? And the T is timeline. Why now? What's happening in their organization? Is it a new leader in place? Is there pressure from the street? Is there a kickoff that they have to get ready for? Is there a commitment for a product launch? Whatever it is. So if you can answer all of those questions, we use it not as a sales methodology, but as a a way to to really pressure test your deals, especially larger deals, and identify where there's gaps. We have to go back and find those out. Because in my experience, if, if my coaching clients can answer all those questions with certainty, and and they're at the right level where they're engaged with those key decision makers, generally those deals do win. So it's a great way to really, and I have a scorecard, I can certainly share it out with um, the group afterwards um, to really back up what questions to ask for each of those letters. But that's really it. Have you missed steps or are we, is it truly qualified to-, to And I, I would add one, one, one reason to your reasons, which is, I think is one of the great overlooked one is what I require of reps, which is- why us? I have that in there. That's one of the, that's the third if, one. I just thought, uh, yeah. <laughs> if you as a seller don't know pretty early, why us, right? Why are they going to buy from us? Okay. Then you really have to question whether it's worth the investment of time. That's, a, that's absolutely right. It, 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 it's in there. What's our unique value proposition? Why are we uniquely positioned to solve this problem is the way that I, I position it in the, in the scorecard. So I'll drop that in the chat, Andy. You can share it with the show notes if anyone wants. We will. We'll share in the show notes. Fantastic. By the way, all right, we're sir. Go ahead, Andy, Eric. That YS question is one that I feel like I've observed salespeople have a real problem asking. I don't know if it's inviting the mm-hmm. elephant in the room because they're afraid of what the answer might be in a lot of cases. Sure. Because they haven't established what that's what that is, right? And and yeah, it just takes work, right? It takes building that relationship to be able to ask that question, to have a, be able to establish that there is something. And the culture. And it could be. Being able to accept the answer without threat of punishment or fear of repercussions. I think it's a fit for everybody and that's fine. 
And sometimes the reason's purely intangible. I had customers I was working with, prospects I was working with, and I thought, yeah, they're kind of a good prospect. There's no way I'm getting through these people at all. There's just something. And it's like, that's not worth my time, right? Or the flip. In some cases, I'd hand them off to another seller on the team. Maybe you can get through to them. I can't. And we're just, not a, we're a mismatch. And that's okay. There's other. You want people to be able to say. The other flip side reality that you're suggesting, but didn't say yet is, what if you're a salesperson and you realize, you know what? This is not a customer that I ever want to work with. Oh, I've got one of those. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> a lot of salespeople would sacrifice their own kind of, I don't know, standards, if you will, yeah. to close a deal, even though the, the spidey sense and everything else would be telling them. You know, saying yeah, they're horrible. Yeah. And they'll be horrible to work with and they're going to be a drag on resources and all that. Here Absolutely. you go, CSMs. Look what I just closed for you. <laughs> Yeah. Have fun. Yeah. Yeah. I've got stories of those. Fortunately, they didn't want to buy from me at the end of the day, which was just fine. But there's a point where I thought they did. But I just, long story short, is there's a customer I've been trying to work with for a long time, ages ago. And they were really, this would have been a huge win to be able to get. And because we had basically all the other major players in this industry except for them. So we were trying to, wasn't the trifecta, is that (laughs) octet, whatever. But I finally get a meeting with their VP of sales and marketing that was the ultimate decision maker for this product. And they're actually in the LA area. So I flew down from the Bay Area to LA and, and I get to their building and I couldn't find a parking space. And I circle the building, finally find a parking space. I'm worried about being late. I pull in, walk into the building and it's a two-story building open in the middle of the atrium. And the number two guy comes down and gets me. And we're about two minutes into our conversation. We hear this voice coming up through the atrium. Who parked in my fucking parking spot? And this guy had a panicked look on his face. And he looks, where'd you park? And I said, I found a parking spot right by the back door. And he says, oh no, that was it. That was the deal. Amazing. <laughs> Thank God we didn't get that customer because they would have been. It was meant to be. <laughs> it was meant to be, yes. So, all right, gentlemen, thank you so much. Meant not to be, I should say. Yeah, meant not to be, right. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a great conversation. So Eric, if people want to learn more about science and connect with you, best way to do that. Sure. Science is uh, C-I-E-N-C-E dot com. Pretty easy to find on the web. You want to connect with me. There's not that many quantums in the world either. So, and obviously- All right. Nate. Yeah. If you listen to the show, you know how to get a hold of us. Uh, one of the best things you yeah. can do is just go to freebuyerinterview.com and we'll conduct a couple of win-loss interviews for you on your behalf and do the diagnostic side of win-loss analysis to help you improve your win rates. Perfect. Ian. Very cool. My website is untappedyoursalespotential.com if you're interested in learning how to work with me or just go to my LinkedIn and follow me or connect. And I post a lot of content there every day. I also shared a free training video for anyone who wants to know how to use predict selling and really win more deals more accurately. You can click Perfect. The link on the show notes. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode of the WinRate Podcast. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And if you're enjoying this new podcast, certainly really appreciate it if you could leave a quick rating or review for the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Getting this feedback is very important to me, and so really appreciate your help with this. I also want to thank my guests today, Eric Quanstone, Nate Bagley, and Ian Koniak for sharing their insights with us. And also, don't forget... If you get a chance, if you haven't already, subscribe to my weekly newsletter. Over 50,000 sellers and sales leaders subscribe to receive Win Rate Wednesday, 
Each week you receive, on Wednesday, you receive one actionable tip to accelerate your win rates and a bunch of other great sales advice as well. So to subscribe, visit my website, andypaul.com, or you can also subscribe on LinkedIn. Again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.